Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us from the Weekly Standard is Bill Crystal. And Bill, it's the first time you've been sober enough since the debate for us to talk. I told you in the drinking game, don't take Trump and huge. That was a big mistake to take huge and classy for your drinking game. Big mistake. Yeah, it was a mistake, but uh, I've recovered. I don't know. I may, I may have recovered a little more. I may have recovered a little more than Donald Trump has from the debate, though. Of course, you know the conventional wisdom is, and there's a lot of truth to it, that Trump can do badly by normal criteria and normal metrics, and nonetheless, he'll uh, hold his support or gain support. But I wonder. I've been saying peak Trump for quite a while, and I do think his, his momentum had slowed down. But I really wonder with that debate, uh, and even what's happened since whether we won't look back and say, you know, mid-September really was the peak of the Trump phenomenon. So is it the post-debate performance, the, the stumble with the guy who asked about, you know, Obama's a Muslim and a foreigner? Is it the general uh, inability to deal with some of the missteps? Or was there a single moment in the debate that you think kind of punctured the Trump balloon? Well, I'd say two things about the debate. I mean, he was, was much more – one forgets in the first debate, I didn't think he did that well, but the expectations were low. Uh, and he wasn't as dominant then in terms, just in terms of the polling. He went into this debate with 30 percent of the Republican primary electorate, Ben Carson at 20, no one else above uh, eight. Uh, that's a pretty you know, strong performance, but of course with that come expectations. Uh, so I just think his general weakness in answering questions and talking about policy probably struck some of his supporters a little more than it has when they just see him giving a stump speech, which he does entertainingly and somewhat effectively. I do think the other moment was when Carly Fiorina just uh, destroyed him on his previous comments about, um, you know, looking at her face. Uh, that was a very, if we should talk more about that, a very effective and impressive response by Fiorina. And then his own response, I thought, was a big mistake. Oh, I think you're beautiful, you know, both a beautiful personality or whatever he said and a beautiful face, which was the bully backing down when someone stood up to him. I, I agree. I mean, I, I keep saying to anyone who will listen, that was the beginning of the end for Trump because it was essentially an apology. He was the he's been the alpha dog and his answer to everybody's always been, oh, yeah, I'm winning and I'm bigger than you. That time he was the beta dog. It was, you know, uh, Carly who was dominating and he literally had his tail, you know, uh, well, he literally he metaf- metaphorically had his yeah, tail right. between his legs. I don't know where his tail was, but metaphorically his tail between his legs. And I don't think his supporters are prepared to stick with him unless he's going to be big and huge and win all the time. Well, you and I are agreed, Michael, which means he'll probably go to 40 percent in, in two weeks in the polls. I thought uh, anyway, so I didn't think he was that impressive. Um, I thought Carly was good. And everyone is now saying that. So that's conventional wisdom in this case. I think true. Partly because, I mean, I've, you and I have done some debate prep for candidates in the past. And and um, she didn't just have one good line or one or two good uh, prepared lines, which she did have, obviously. Uh, she had really three or four moments that were pretty impressive, um, really among the probably among the six or seven most impressive moments in the debate. She probably had half of them, you know. And also she was – what showed me real candidate skills was she sort of did – the lines didn't look like she just suddenly was popping out a prepared one-liner or two-liner. She managed to transition into them smoothly. So in the case where she wanted to – you know, she knew she was going to be asked about Trump's comments about her uh, her face and so she was ready. But she managed to – she prefaced – she made it a two-sentence answer. The first sentence was, well, I noticed when when, when Mr. Trump was, was exactly. responding to Jeb Bush or discussing Jeb Bush, he said this. So there she managed to make it a smooth transition. It wasn't too standalone and artificial. And then I thought what showed also candidate skills or maybe good advice from someone was she made her point and she stopped and – 
the rest of these guys, you know, I've got 60 seconds. I'm going to go for 60 seconds. I'm going to go for another five or eight seconds because I might convince someone in those last five seconds within another brilliant point. She understood. She, she really had thought that one through. Less is more in that case. And it was um, that was effective. Look, she was very good, and we'll see now. You know whether she can sustain it. Suddenly, she'll be under the spotlight, both in terms of her record at Hewlett Packard, and and just in terms of her general conduct as a candidate. But what an irony! I mean, the the best actual candidates in this race are the people. I mean, in terms of pure candidate sure. skills, turn out to be the people who uh, haven't run before, or though I think they're not sustainable, but still, you know, they have surged to the lead, Trump and Carson, or in Carly Fiorina's case, someone who's run once and lost. All these other people who went in, and I thought so too, who, you know, they've won, they've won in tough states, they've won repeatedly. Uh, they haven't really proved to be great candidates, I've got to say. Well, I think in, a, in other political climates, they would, but the model of you want Washington to be fixed, look how I fixed, fill in the blank, you know, Ohio, Wisconsin, whatever, isn't the lead conversation, the lead conversation is, oh, my gosh, I hate Washington. <laughs> I hate all you politicians. And so you've got a political guy saying, look how I can make politics work. And you've got an electorate that says, I don't want you to make this work. I've seen it work for the past seven years. Republicans you know, do the responsible thing and lose. I want you to just go in and win. And I don't care how you do it. And so, I mean, this is like the nightmare year for a Scott Walker, who I would think in another year would be a great candidate. No, that's a good point. I mean, if you think, I think voters in Wisconsin and Ohio probably think the country's on the wrong track almost as much as, you know, voters in, in, in every other state. And so when their governor stands up and says, basically, things are really good in our state and look how good I made them, they don't really distinguish, well, maybe he's improved state government a little bit and it's just the federal government that's messing everything up. They think, hey, the status quo is not good. And this guy is trying to sell his achievements, which are part, by definition, of the status quo since he's in office. Right. So I really, I agree with that. The governors are particularly disadvantaged by that. By this environment, which is why I think actually Rubio of the of the elected officials, Rubio and to some degree Cruz have probably um, sort of survived the debate so far the best and had done a decent job at least of getting out some sense that they have uh, you know a vision for the future. Well, you mentioned some other names. So the other performers, did anyone else get noticed, or was it the uh, Trump Carly show throughout the? What was that thing? Seven hours long? I'm trying to, to I know. remember. I think it's the uh, the debate miniseries running. Well, here's my advice on that. I happened to be, it was pure chance, but it was the only flight I could get flying back cross country, most of the country, from west to east to New York uh, late that evening. So it was actually coinciding with the debate. And I was all prepared to, obviously, I wouldn't watch it, but I'd be able to, you know, I'd obviously watch it online when I got to my hotel room and so forth so I could discuss it. And then it turned out I had one of those TV sets in the back of the seat in front of me, that, which a lot of the air, airlines have now. Sure. But of course, in my experience, they never work, but they did actually work. <laughs> so I, so if you if you don't want to make it feel like it's too long, be on a boring, long uh, flight across the country, and you're actually grateful that the debate keeps on, keeps on going. But it, it did go for a long time. It was mostly the Trump-Carly show. Um, I don't think Ben Carson did well. I mean, I think a lot of people have been – Carson's surge in the polls has been actually even more remarkable than Trump in some ways. He's gone, I think, from – I looked at the numbers recently. In six weeks, he's gone from something like 6 or 7 percent, maybe 8 percent to 20 percent uh, and was going – you know, continuing to go up until the debate. Maybe he still will. But I think if you were someone who had – Seen Carson a bit, heard about him, very impressed by his life story, by his manner, a real gentleman. Uh, and then you actually watch the debate. I've got to think you'd be a little worried that he just isn't ready to be president of the United States in terms of his familiarity with the issues, uh, his decisiveness and laying out a course of action. So I think Carson was hurt. I continue to think Trump was hurt. Uh, Carly was helped. 
Jeb Bush, I thought, mixed, you know. I mean, I think he'll stay in, but he'll, he'll have all the money. And he's, you know, you could imagine everyone defaulting to him at the end. But I, I don't think he was very impressive. I think the two who probably were hurt the most, apart from Trump and Carson, were the two governors we just mentioned, Walker and Kasich. Uh, neither did very well, and I, as you say, I, I think it's, I think you put it well. Actually, their message is just so out of sync with the mood of the country right now that they're going to have a tough time adjusting. Uh, and I think a Ben Carson problem is nobody believes he's going to be a fighter. And for good or ill, the GOP base is in a scrapping mood. I also wonder if Jeb Bush didn't hurt himself maybe a little more than we see right now with that exchange with Donald Trump. When you, If you're going to be in front of a group of people and you're a man and you demand an apology for your wife while she's sitting right there in, this, in the room, you better get that apology. And when he didn't and basically you know, rhetorically slunk away, I thought, wow, could you look any weaker than you do right now, Jeb? You know, that's a good point, Michael. And we were just talking about this in the office. Uh, as I'd been out of town and I got back, we were just, you know, all re- you know kind, of, kind of sharing thoughts and just gabbing uh, about the debate, our favorite moments and stuff. And someone shrewdly pointed out that after that moment, which I agree was not good for Jeb, where he just seems to, okay, you didn't apologize. I'm not going to say or do anything more. Uh, at the end of the debate, when they're going through what were their Secret Service names, um, I guess uh, Jeb says, what did he say? Uh, uh, energi- uh, energizer. Uh, ever ready. Ever ready. That's it. Ever ready. Yeah, ever ready. And Trump says, hey, that's good. And then they exchange kind of a high five. Do you remember this? Or yes. a low five or some kind of five. And and Jeb looks kind of pleased by it. So wait a second. This guy who refused to apologize your, to your wife for what was allegedly a very, you know, uh, uh, nasty insult exactly. half an hour before you're now exchanging kind of a hand slap with. I, I, yeah, I tend to agree. Maybe, maybe that will do more damage than it was evident, than was evident at first. Well, you know, if you're not going to fight for your wife, are you going to fight for your principles? And that's a concern about Jeb already is, is he really up there to fight for some principles? Is he really more there to, quote, govern? You know, and Republicans know what that means. Govern means do what the Democrats want. Well, I'm thinking uh, about in that context. I mean, so we've had a bad performance, I think most people would say, by the not too impressive performance by the congressional Republicans on the Iran bill. They accepted that corker process, and now they've it's proven to play right into Obama's hands. We're about to have now in the next 10 days a fight about government shutdown, and what, however that plays out, it's hard to believe that the congressional Republicans, who have spent the last 10 months or so saying, you know what, <clears throat> we've got to show we can govern, uh, they're going to show just what you what that really means. It, it, a, it doesn't even mean compromising effectively. That would be one thing. If the right. choice were between fighting and going down fighting and compromising effectively, then reasonable people will differ on the value to put on it. It's going to be compromising ineffectively and at losing, you know, not holding your own conference together, et cetera. So I think the in that respect, the outsider message will get stronger, presumably, or the receptivity right. to it among Republican voters over the next few weeks. Hey, look, Bill, you hang out with these insider GOP squish types. You go to your cocktail parties in Georgetown and you know, swap yes. your favorite uh, cartoons from The New Yorker. What is Mitch McConnell thinking by not blowing up the filibuster for the Iran deal? I just don't this it, to, from what's setting aside you know, policy issues as bad as I think the Iran deal is. What an opportunity to say, okay, base, we hear you. We're going to fight and we're going to fight on something that is, you know, our position is unassailable. Why not do it and give them the fight that they want and do the right thing at the same time? I just don't get it. 
Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, they may think, and Mitch McConnell may think, you know, they defeated the base in some of those primary, or what they regard as the base, in some of those primaries in 2014, uh, whether it was uh, in his own case or in Mississippi and other places. And he may just think, you know what, if, uh, we won and we're going to govern the way we want. And his recipe for success for 2016, I know this to be true, is, you know, don't make waves and don't pick fights we're going to lose and don't look radical or extreme. And the media is not on our side so that we, and we don't have much history in overcoming the media bias. So well, I mean, the way he would put it, the best way to put it for him probably is, you know, we have to succumb to it now so we can then really govern conservatively in 2017. Of course, there'll be other reasons in 2017 why exactly. uh, we don't get to govern conservatively. And I think it is ultimately a miscalculation even of how you lay the groundwork for the election in 2016. Yeah, I just, it just seems like such an opportunity just from a camp, you know, campaign strategy standpoint. Back to the campaign strategy, who looked most ready to take on Hillary Clinton at the end of the night? Well, I do think, you know, I was thinking about yeah, that, that too, if you had the debate with Hillary Clinton, who, for all the people like us, don't think highly of her and she's run a horrible campaign. She did a ton of debates with Obama in, in 2008 and didn't do badly, actually, um, especially after the first two or three when she got kind of used to it. Joe Biden, whom people like us think is kind of a bozo, didn't do badly, to be fair, in the 2012 debate with Paul Ryan. So it's a, it's a, it's a concern if you think you're going up against Hillary or Biden. Who will hold his own? Someone's going to look younger and, and less experienced. I think you would – I personally would be confident with Carly. Um, I think you know, Marco Rubio is, knows his stuff and is very attractive. He just needs to slow down a little and look a little less like the really smart high school kid who wants to show <laughs> that he knows everything. I presume he can do that. I mean he is, he is a smart guy who's in private conversation, is very charming and relaxed. He just looks a little too much – too intense on getting everything in up there on the stage. But I don't think you came away from that debate thinking that Jeb Bush would really necessarily beat Hillary or Biden in a debate. And I think you were, if you come away from that debate, worried about Walker and Kasich, I would say Cruz is a funny case. I mean, he's incredibly good in a way. He's got his prepackaged uh, speeches right. in his mind. They have the right time, length, basically. They're very fluent. I agree with 95 percent of what he says. I can't help but think somehow it doesn't come across quite uh, as well as it could because it looks so packaged and rehearsed. But on the other hand, maybe people at some point say, OK, I don't care. He looks a little packaged and rehearsed, but he knows his stuff and it's stuff I agree with. So I, I think Cruz is sort of an interesting question mark uh, as to how he plays out over the both over the next few months. And then obviously, if, if, if he makes out to the ticket, he's he, here's Senator Cruz. Election. Here's Senator Cruz. He debates Hillary and beats her on a scorecard 70 30. And then everyone votes for Hillary anyway. Because yeah, they think, just don't like him. I mean, there's the, he is, and I don't know how to tell someone to overcome this quality, but for people, particularly, you know, I had the, for, the good fortune of growing up in the South. I grew up in an evangelical family. I went to Oral Roberts University. I know the Ted Cruz's of the world. I'm used to their cadence, their approach, their word selection. But if you grew up like my Jewish wife in the Jewish suburbs of Cleveland, he sounds like some guy out of a, you know, Dukes of Hazard episode. And that's just a fact. And I'm, I'm interested to see if he can overcome that. I would say maybe that may be for some people the problem. And for others, it's um, more just the overly practiced and somewhat staged mm -hmm. manner with which he does. They should all – Huckabee, you know, had a good debate. He's not going to, I think, be a nominee. He probably won't even be a finalist. And so people are kind of ignoring him. Mike Huckabee is an awfully capable uh, debater and speaker. Mm -hmm. And people should look at his, the way in which he appears relaxed, unhurried, but able to make a pretty cogent point up there. No, I agree. I agree. And there was a it was interesting to me the the amount of talent yet again that we saw on that stage. When you think about 2012 
uh, it's just a, it's a new world. So let's hope that it works out that way. Uh, any final thoughts about how Hillary should be feeling this week? Well, just on your last point, I mean, that's my editorial this week is sort of, you know, the good news is there's a lot of talent. The bad news is right now the two people who are getting together, 50 percent of the Republican vote in the polls really aren't, in my view, prepared or, or probably qualified to be president and would lose in a general if they won the nomination. And therefore, it's a little – it's an odd moment. You know, It really is an interesting moment. I'm not sure we've ever quite had a situation like this. The good news, I say in the editorial, is Hillary really is an awful candidate and is fading. Bernie Sanders – I don't think can win the nomination. If you were to win it, I don't think would win the general election. Uh, and the others who are going to come riding to the rescue, I guess Biden, Kerry, um, Jerry Brown, they're now talking about, are not exactly fresh faces. So uh, this might be a good year. Uh, the Republicans can afford a little, maybe a, not to be perfect this year, uh, and still to win. Having said that, you don't want to count on on on, on your on your uh, you know your your opponent's uh, um, limitations winning the election for you. So I I really would like to see one of these candidates. I think Fiorina uh, here's the way I put it in the editorial. I'm curious if you agree with this, Michael. I'd say if you think about where, what we thought of these of the candidates six or nine months ago, uh, and people like us who'd seen them some. Uh, who has outperformed? Who has done better than we would have expected? Well, I guess Trump and Carson. And I would say Fiorina. I don't actually think any of the elected officials has done quite as well as I thought, with the partial ex- exception maybe of Rubio, who I think has been pretty much what I would have thought. So I'm a little worried. They've got to up their game a little bit. Uh, no, I agree. And it is that when you have expectations and you don't meet them, that's twice as bad. You know, if Carla Fiorina made a mistake now at this point, people would cut her some slack because they say, look, I know she's pretty good at this. But when you expect someone to show up and get it done and they don't, that's two strikes. And the underperformers, the, the, to me, the bar has always been if you can beat Trump, you can beat Hillary. If you can't beat Trump, I don't know that I want you, uh, you know, quarterbacking the team. And so far, only one person's beat Trump, and that's Carla Fiorina. Well said. Well said. I, well, I, let me stop right there because I won't get any better. So <laughs> thank you so much for joining us for the podcast, Bill. Hey, my pleasure, Michael. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.